Um, that sense of belonging is so important for a learner. I think it's equally important for a faculty member. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's often overlooked. And if we can really start to think about this being a challenge, not just something that we all push for, um, because it's an important thing to do, but to give people the time and space and the training to do it is really important too. Hi, I'm Marisol Morales. I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Emily Shields, and this is the Compact Nation podcast. So how's everybody doing this snowy, at least here, um, January day? I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm bought in to the idea that it's 2020. Are you? Yeah, a little while to adjust, but now I'm I'm fully here. I like the symmetry. It's not quite symmetrical, but I like the number. You know what I mean? It's a nicely shaped number. So the roundness of it, the doubling, the first part, the second part, just feel like good stuff will happen in a year that has a good shape like that. Mm, yes, we need good stuff to happen. Um, I'm doing good. Uh, I heard that. So one of the things that I saw was like to prevent fraud, don't just put 2020 on a thing because then they can like people can add numbers to the end. So to write out the whole 2020. So that's a tip for the. For oh, this year. like don't just put 20. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. I, I guess it's confusing how. Now I'm trying to figure out what's the fraud scheme that you can come up with that's based on that. I have no idea. Yeah. But maybe checks or I don't know, whatever. Yeah. But Yeah. I write uh, one check per month. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's really it. Yeah. We no longer have any physical checks. Like we ran out and then we haven't replenished them. And then every once in a while this becomes a giant problem and we spend an enormous amount of effort to deal with the fact that we don't have any physical checks, but then we don't order anymore. You should probably order just in case. Sounds like a great cycle. Just fun. Really fun. No, it's a good method. Yeah. It all has to do with like not having moved. Oh, it's a long and complicated story. It's one of those things in life that's connected to so many other things that, um, and it, it would be spectacularly boring, but... I'm just telling you, it's so complicated. It's you not don't so have any with like seems. your old address, but same bank account because you can still use those. No, because we just ran. No, the point is we've never moved our banking since we left New Jersey. This is the issue. And we always mean to do that. So then we're like, let's not order checks from our New Jersey bank. Let's move our banking up to Boston. And we've and never you done never that. done. No. Yeah. But it's only been a little more than half a decade. So mm-hmm. it yeah. might be time. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> it uh, might be time. Okay. Well, I said we are... it was incredibly boring, and then I went into it. I just wanted to get yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it for the record. That happened. And you weren't wrong. <laughs> so for the one listener who's still here. Nobody's here. What, uh... um, well, we are a mere 20 days away from the Iowa caucuses. I know. That should be That's fun. That's kind of my life at the moment. Um I am helping to chair my caucus, and so I'm doing the, the uh, tr- these training modules. Do you guys know about caucus math? 
Because the caucuses are incredibly complicated. Like I, no. I turned to my husband at some point yesterday and said, if we were designing a system and the goal was complexity, I don't think we could have done any better. It's insane. So uh, I know a little bit about caucus math in the sense that if you don't get the 15%, right, you you go away. Is that the idea? You don't get any delegates if you're below 15% within if, your if caucus. If your precinct has four or more delegates, that's true. For the teeny tiny precincts, it's different. But yeah, but there's it's so much more. And then, then there's math around apportioning the delegates. And I think this year it's going to be way more complicated because there are so many candidates. Um, you have to go through rounds, right? Yeah. There's the first alignment, and then if your candidate's not viable, you get to align again. But then there actually might be another one, too, because, anyway, it's just very, it's wild. How long does this take? A few hours, yeah. So they expect citizens to go to Mm -hmm. whatever places stay hours to get to and are people like into it like is there high participation oh no no i mean this is the whole was it built for low participation it seems sometimes like that i I mean i don't think i mean what's interesting i think historically it wasn't built for low participation it was actually built as a way of democratizing giving ordinary people the chance to actually meet with their fellow citizens express their views etc and of course, there were different expectations about family structure and whose responsibility it was to show up and all sorts of things that reflect uh, built in inequities. But but I actually think like the tradition of high participation, sort of the progressive uh, traditions of those upper Midwest states are are kind of where the caucus comes from. I mean, it was built as a party process where the idea is not that you just go submit a ballot and go home, where the idea is that you come together and actually like work it out. Um, And that I love, but it is very challenging for people to participate. I mean, I've been even trying to convince my fellow caucus chairs to have a plan for people who have brought their kids because it's yeah, like, I was oh, going to ask because they're trying to, you know, the here. kids will be over here. And I'm just like, well, my kids are not going to be okay just being over here in this arena, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's, it could be better, but so I love are, it. Too. Are there talks to modernize it or to? Well, yeah, we've been trying this year. There were supposed to be, um, virtual caucuses that you could call into, but the DNC shot that down because it they weren't confident it could be secure. Mm-hmm. So there are satellite caucuses now, which is a good step in the right direction. So essentially anybody can apply to have a caucus anywhere. So examples would be, you know, college campuses, if they aren't already a, so- a caucus site, could be a satellite caucus. And I know one of our member campuses in Iowa at least applied that wasn't already a caucus site is doing that. Um, long-term care facilities can be caucus sites mm-hmm. so that those people don't have to leave. Even employers can be caucus sites. So if you're, you know, you work at a hospital and none of you can leave, you could have your own caucus site. Um, and, it, and for sure, there's even one like out in D.C. and in some other places where co- like college students are and that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there are a lot of efforts to try to improve upon it. Um, and does each party figure out what their sort of caucus structure? Yeah. Is? Yep. So they're they're similar in that it's the same night and people come together, but the processes are different. Um 
the Republican side does a sort of more straightforward, like balloting situation. Um, it's on the Democratic side that there's the viability thresholds and apportioning and all of all of that jazz. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder, it must be hard for folks who have done elections someplace else and then moved to Iowa to try to figure this out. Like, what is happening? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and the, the toughest thing now has been because participation is now a lot higher than it used to be. So that's, you know, at least it's higher than it was 15, 20 years ago, which is mm-hmm. really exciting, but it makes it challenging to find sites that work. Yeah. For my caucus, we're expecting at least 1,200 people. Oh, wow. And the middle school gym we've used in the past won't work. So we're going to be at Drake University in their big, like, basketball arena. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's the idea is that it's this, like, b- a bunch of people in their living room, in a living room or, like, a local school or that kind of thing. And we're, in some cases, not really able to find the sites that work for that. So, which is, that's a great challenge. So, but yeah, it's all, it's all happening. We're getting canvassers and phone calls and text messages. And I love all that. Uh, And there's a debate um, at Drake University, our member campus on Tuesday night, Tuesday, January 15th. So it's exciting. Cool. Send pictures. Yeah. And Andrew, you were just in our primary cousin state, right? New Hampshire. New Hampshire. uh, Yeah. Exactly. Speaking at the college convention, which was a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of What's students. What's the college convention? Yeah. The college convention is uh, it's an event that we co-sponsored that uh, New England College organizes that brings together students from across the country to really learn about presidential primary process, the New Hampshire primary in particular, but uh, more broadly, they hear from candidates. Uh, I was the warm-up act for Amy Klobuchar. Um and uh, she, you know, if if you're looking for comedy, obviously she delivers. No, she was um, she was good, uh, entertaining. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was it was fun. And I love being up in New Hampshire at this time of year. I've been there a number of times with students and uh, it's a little early there. So like we were there last week, it wasn't quite ramped up in the way it will be in a couple weeks. Um, and it also varies, you know, given how close Iowa is and how many candidates probably think they have a shot there. A lot of the focus is there. And I was only a week before New Hampshire this year. So I think that's right. But Um, So, you know, a lot of the candidates won't really shift their focus to New Hampshire until after Iowa, I suspect. Um, So some years there's a bigger gap and everybody comes to New Hampshire or there's candidates who just know they aren't competitive in Iowa. So they focus all of their attention on New Hampshire. That may happen as the polls shake out a little bit that. uh, Yeah, but but it is a complicated year this year because there's so many candidates who either have a realistic shot or their only shot left is a big showing in Iowa or New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Right. I think there's, and there was just an Iowa poll yesterday, um, you know, with more, way more shifts. I mean, it's very, very much still, uh, still shifting and changing. And I think any outcome is on the table. It's true. That's why people have to show up, even when it's a little bit complicated to do so. 
Yes, I know. I've made it sound terrible. And honestly, I ha- I love the caucus so, so much. And for yes, it's hard to give up a couple hours and it'll be hard to figure out how to deal with my kids with that and all of that. But there's also just absolutely nothing like it and the energy and um, the really getting, you know, the, the, the second alignment where if your candidate's not viable, everybody kind of tries to convince you to go with them and tries to, you know, figure out scenarios. That is just so much fun. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to it. And I think that um, there's a solid chance my caucus will be broadcast live on some national news network. So you guys can can check it out and let me know how we're doing. <laughs> awesome. I like it. Emily Shields, nationally famous caucus chair. <laughs> I'm not the chair. Nope, not doing that. Oh, wait, what did you say you were? I'm helping to oh, run our caucus. Okay. But All yeah, right. no, no, no. There's, right. there's people uh, vie for that in some cases. And ours, we have a wonderful person who's done it for a few times already. So... Not going for that role. Clarity. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, we have a pretty exciting interview this time. I was really um, looking forward to this one, and we've worked to schedule it for a little while. I was able to interview Vigie Sathy. She's a teaching associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. She's also a special projects assistant to the Dean of Undergraduate Education, all at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I came across her because... Um, Along with a colleague, she published a guide to inclusive teaching in the Chronicle of Higher Education this past summer that I have used a lot and found to be very helpful um, and have really woven into a lot of the faculty development that we do. I think there are so many parallels between inclusive teaching and the community engaged teaching um, and civic learning that we're promoting. So we had a good conversation about that. She is a national expert on inclusive teaching, does a lot of speaking and writing, including um, she has a blog, a website with a lot of great resources, inclusified.com, which we can share with our listeners. And we talked a little about her research as well, which is about connecting these sort of inclusive and innovative teaching techniques to retention, particularly in STEM. So a lot of great stuff. It was wonderful to talk to her. And let's go right to that interview. Vigi Sathy, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. It's great to have you on. And I think for our listeners, it would be helpful right up top for you to help understand what, how you would define inclusive teaching. Mm. So um, <clears throat> I think what I would say is, uh, hold on, let me think about this. So when I think about inclusive teaching, what I think about are the ways in which we design our classes and facilitate our classrooms, either in person or online, if we're teaching online, Um, thinking about the ways in which um, people might feel included or excluded as part of the activities we have in a classroom. So to give you an example, um, oftentimes I think people think about the content of our courses and whether or not they're inclusive. So do they include uh, varied voices or Mm -hmm. um, are the texts from a variety of 
the outlets. Whereas I think one of the things that we often overlook is, um, you know, are our PowerPoints accessible, for example, um, is the methodology we're using for having a class discussion um, available for everyone to be able to enter into freely. So really thinking broadly about inclusion and making sure that every member of the classroom community feels that they can contribute. Great. So you have, you know, chosen to um, make that your teaching practice, but also to research it and speak on it and publish about it. Um, Why? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, um, in part because it's a lot of my own personal experience, Mm -hmm. uh, thinking about ways I've felt excluded in different situations and wondering how to make it better for um, the next group and thinking about too just, um, you know, the lessons I've learned being a practitioner in the classroom, trying different things out and uh, my approach and focus uh, working with faculty when I talk to faculty about this has really been very hands-on and practical because oftentimes I see that sometimes these discussions can get pretty theoretical and you don't really know how to make actionable steps to improve Mm -hmm. as an educator. And so I I bring to this, um, I hope to bring to this, not just ideas, but really actionable steps that someone can take to think about how to improve inclusion immediately. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel like something that's going to take a complete overhaul of your course, for example. It can be as simple as uh, making sure that you can pronounce the names of your students correctly, Mm -hmm. something like that. That makes sense. And I came across your work this summer with the Guide to Inclusive Teaching Mm -hmm. that you um, co-wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education. And I have found it to be incredibly useful. Um, But the connections between what we're talking about, you focusing on and our work in community-engaged pedagogy might not be immediately obvious to some of our listeners, I think for me, my part of my draw to community engagement is just experiential and experimental and different pedagogies in general. So I always see threads between different ones of how can this be different to respond to different people. But, you know, we talked a little bit before this and, and I shared a little bit about our work. And I'm curious if you have come across much around community-engaged pedagogy and um, any similarities that kind of struck you there. Yeah, I think, um, so for me, one of the more immediate parallels I see is that I teach a course that is a research-based a course that's called a CURE, a course-based undergraduate research experience, mm. where students conduct research as part of the class. And um, this is a, a move that our campus has made to try to increase opportunities for research for students so that they don't have to, for example, they don't have to have the social capital to seek out a research mentor. They can, through enrollment in a course, gain research experience and skills. Mm -hmm. And so I teach a class um, that is this way, and I teach it in both a large format and a small format. So my large one has 200 students, and my smaller one has about 30 students. And and because of the size of the courses, I, I do them quite a little bit differently. But when I think about my small class, I think it's most connected to the kinds of ideas that you all talk about in that um, the instructor needs to have some comfort around the fact that this there's not a script, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, and that there's some uncertainty about the outcome. And because it's research, 
it's very authentic to the actual experience of research that we mm-hmm. don't know what the outcome will be. Um, there's the added pressure of having some kind of closure within a 16-week period. Our semesters yeah. are about 16 weeks. Um, so unlike research that could maybe extend beyond that that time frame, we really need to get this in within a classroom experience. So um, I see a lot of parallels in those um, in those types of courses that are more experiential in nature. And, um, and when I think about, when I speak and, and um, write about inclusive teaching, what I'm doing is saying that this is an overlay to the practices that you engage in in these classes. Mm-hmm. So when I work with students to carry out a research project, for example, I'm always thinking about ways in which um, I can ensure that everyone in the classroom is feeling engaged and feels the opportunity to really um, to be working fully within the groups that they have, um, evaluating one another, figuring out what their strengths are. So thinking about um, every interaction I have with them, every set of materials that I provide to them, um, all of them being invitational in nature and thinking mm. through the organization of it. and. A lot of it is, it's almost like this choreography where you have to really figure out like, okay, now I want them to do this activity where they're going to brainstorm around, for example, a hypothesis they might have. Well, then I have to bring structure to that activity. I need to provide the questions to them both orally and visually. And they need to have resources to be able to know not just what the question is, but what kinds of ways I would like for them to report out on their discussion. Yeah. Um, so this is all just... Uh, applying these principles of inclusive teaching to an individual class session, but it could be also applied to assignments overall or projects. Um, So every aspect of a course. Yeah. You know, one of the big things that I really took away from, again, that guide was the structure. You really Mm -hmm. focused a lot on structure, structure, structure. There needs to be more structure. And I have incorporated that much more now into the faculty development that I do around community engagement because it helps to solidify what I was feeling because I think the same is absolutely true of community engaged learning. It's sort of a paradox that you have to give up control, but you also have to have a lot more structure and Mm. um, to try to ensure some strong outcomes. But I am... You, some of what you've written, I've read about some of the specific pushback or arguments you get about that. Um, mm-hmm. One of, that I think we have in common is the uh, just just time crunch. Who that's teaching a full course load has time to add all that structure to classes. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? Yeah, it is. It, it's a time commitment, but it's also one that is uh, it's an initial investment that pays dividends over mm-hmm. time. Um, but it, it also levels the playing field when you think about who has, um, who knows how to do school, for example, mm-hmm. who knows what are the ways to succeed in a classroom? Um, what are the values that the instructor wants? Some students are very adept at navigating that and some students aren't and haven't had a lot of training in it. So if we can provide that structure, then we're really giving every student the opportunity to engage in the way that we want them to engage in it. So I I think it's partly sort of this uh, imperative we have to really create an opportunity for every student. But it's also, um, it it is time consuming, but 
once created, it can be reused in the same way that people yeah. think about a slide deck that they create for their course. Uh, having the instructions for a prompt is immensely helpful to me um, <laughs> as I review my materials. It's not, I'm not having to really think through, well, what, what was the activity I'm having them do to do this? It's all laid out clearly for me as well when I teach the course again. Yeah. Well, and I run into that too. And I think, um, you know, the arg- other argument that you wrote about uh, that I think is interesting and also run into is this idea of that it's, that it's handholding. So I run into mm-hmm. faculty who want to ask first or second year students to create their own community engaged experience. You know, they should go out and find a community partner. And my argument is always that they, that that will not work, that they are not at the level of that, that they need more, a lot more structure than that, um, that maybe only people towards the end of their academic career are prepared for that. Um, but get that same kind of pushback that we should be, that we should be pushing them, that we're holding their hands too much, that we're coddling them too much. So what do you say to that? Yeah, I think that's, um, I, I don't really see it that way. I, I really, the way I see it is that we have high standards for what our students should be able to accomplish, but equipping them to meet those standards through this structure. I think what happens is people on this, people will take the word structure on the surface and think it means constraining. Mm. Um, And it's not about constraining. It's about providing guidelines. To mm-hmm. students, it's about providing models for what you might look for or, or things that you're wanting from a student. Um, if you think about it, you know, anytime that you're sitting in a room and we've all done this or in a meeting and the person has asked a question, for example, um, there are some times when all of us will look and say, what was the question again? What are we supposed to be responding to? Uh-huh. Um, and And that's an example of where a little bit more structure would be helpful. So potentially, you know, if it's a question that required a lot of brainstorming, maybe that could be sent out in advance of the meeting Um, or it could be provided on a, um, you know, on a piece of paper that's circulated around the room so that you can see it in print in addition to hear it. Um, These are all these are all techniques that are really helpful to everyone in the room. And so it's, again, an opportunity to make sure that everyone is able to engage because they have either multiple modalities or they've got some time to think about what they, what they would want to offer to that conversation. Um, so for me, I, I don't see it as coddling. I see it as really improving the, the ability or the, your efficiency of, with working with students and hearing from more students because they have um, either the time or ways in which they could engage that are varied. Yeah. Um. One of the other threads that I picked up on in your work that really spoke to me and I I think will to folks in our field is this idea of really bringing your whole self to the classroom and inviting students to do the same. Mm. And I appreciated some of what you wrote about that. You know, I think you wrote about a specific time when you were struggling in your life and openly shared that with students Mm and, um, I think that's really important and absolutely essential to authenticity and community-engaged teaching. Um, But I wonder why you think that's so challenging and what you've run into in terms of helping faculty to see it that way. Yeah, I think it takes a certain amount of comfort um, to be able to do that in a classroom. I think um, I... 
you know, I've been at this for a while. I have been able to experiment with, um, you know, what I share with students and how, how I share with students. And what I've learned is, um, and it's not surprising that in the end, we're just some human beings who want to connect with one another. Mm-hmm. And if I only put on this face that all I know and do is, in this case, statistics, um, then that's false. That's not, that's not actually what I, that's not what I'm about. That's not what they're about. And yes, we might be in a room together to learn statistics, but we also have, they have their lives. I have my life. And, um, and it's really important, I think, to model for students that, um, that when we have hardships, for example, that it's not something that has to be swept under a rug, that it can be something that we say, you know, this might be a particularly hard hard experience. And I, unfortunately, over the last few years, have had many opportunities with students <laughs> where either things are happening on campus or yeah. in the public that, um, that feel really challenging for certain groups of students. And so I want to acknowledge that. I want them to know that that's something that I um, recognize might be a challenge for them, not just in learning, but also in just in being who they are as a human being. And, um, and it yeah. is... I. I think the challenge to, for my peers tends to be not knowing how to say it, not knowing either in person how to say it or in an email or how to address it. So the most, um, I guess the easiest thing to do is not say anything at all, which is not, is not appropriate either. Cause it, it, so many of my students, especially when there's been something challenging that's happened in, in society. So many of my students say a lot of my professors never said a word about this and and I know it's not because their professors don't care about that. It's just they don't know how to talk about it with their students. Yeah, and that's a big thing that we work on as well as, you know, these community-engaged pedagogies, but really also just pedagogy that's engaging with difficult conversations, political conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much research to suggest that is better for student well-being. It also leads to them being engaged in voting, political discussions in the classroom do, that kind of thing. But I also run into just a lot of fear among mm-hmm. faculty about what that looks like and how to do that. And I wonder um, what your biggest piece of advice is for faculty in thinking about, you know, just the, the can of worms this might open up in terms of the kind of discussions that would then happen in your classroom. What do you do if they go in a direction you're not prepared for? Right. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that can happen. I think that's where structure helps you sometimes, right? So if, you ha- if you're planning a discussion, if you're planning, thinking through how it doesn't become a runaway train, that you've actually got some structure on reporting, uh, maybe people are writing something, uh, and it's, it could be anonymous, it could be coming through an online channel that you can sift through and share some things. Um, so there's techniques that you could use that keep, um, that, that could help you um, have that conversation. I think the most important thing is that you have to do what you feel comfortable doing. And if it, if in that moment something happens and you're not sure how to address it, to also be comfortable to say, I need a little time yeah. to figure out how to, how to address this. And I don't want it to go away. I don't, I'm not me- I'm meaning to push it off, but I just want to make sure I'm doing this right and doing, giving it justice and um, spending some time doing that. I, in my course, I, I don't, it's not natural for me to talk about, for example, politics, um, unless it comes up in, in a, if we're thinking about like voting and, uh, and identifying aberrant 
conditions and voting using statistics. Um, so there are certain situations where it's it's not relevant or meaningful for them to know what my positions are on things. Right. Um, so I, I think it's helpful to consider um, while it's good for your students to know who you are, it's important to know what might alienate your students. And if you are in a classroom where that's part of the discussion and is an integral part of the discussion, then making sure your students understand that they're free to believe and hold whatever beliefs they'd like and that they're all, that, that you're supposed to be able to engage in a respectful discussion. Hopefully you can cultivate that um, with your students because I think that is one of the hardest things that we're, we're really struggling with being yeah. able to identify and, and really deal with difference. Absolutely. But it's so important that we take it on um, and take it on in the classroom. I think that matters a lot. Mm -hmm. So some of your research has looked specifically at how this type of inclusive teaching affects its retention, especially in STEM. What have you found? Right. So I, um, in particular, one of the studies that I've done is looking at my statistics course. I redesigned it um, essentially to be a flipped classroom where students are watching videos before they come into class. And then we use that class time to do more of the analysis and practice problems. Um, and so I collected data um, before and after this change. And then I also looked at not just test scores on a common um, final exam, but also some of the students' ideas about their perceptions of learning as well as their interest in the topic. Um, and what I found was that learning overall improved when I redesigned the course to be focused on um, having students come prepared and then in, in using those inclusive techniques in the classroom session um, to allow more students to engage in the material. One tool that I use very heavily is a classroom response system. So every student, 100% of my students are answering questions in class that I pose to them. And I use that data to then decide um, what I should do next in the classroom session, if, if it requires more discussion or mm. if we can move on to the next idea, for example. Um, so for me, it, it really allowed me to um, have more opportunities to interact with students in a classroom session and be more nimble about what we do in that session. And I saw that not only did learning improve for students, but also their um, interest in the topic overall, statistics overall improved. And it's not surprising to think about because now in class, instead of hearing me sort of work a problem, um, they're really listening to each other, think about what's the value of actually answering that particular question we might mm -hmm. have in statistics. Um, and then also looking at gender differences and differences in underrepresented groups, um, that those those gaps close or, or that there's less of a difference. Um, for, for example, um, I teach a quantitative course and to see that women, that the, the difference between women's scores and men's scores um, essentially disappeared once I engaged in these methods. Um, so that's these are really amazing. helpful techniques. Yes, these are helpful techniques to be, again, like invitational to the field. So once they have a positive experience in an introductory course like mine, they now consider potentially taking another course or at least having some sense of success. And unfortunately, what happens in a quantitative course is that they come in feeling like they have not had success in it and won't have success in it. So it's really changing mindsets once you discover that 
the approach might be the at fault and not necessarily the content. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about is, you know, a fair amount of our audience is certainly faculty members teaching their own courses, but we also work with a lot of folks who are more in the role of supporting faculty members, of thinking about um, the structures and processes and policies on campus that support faculty members and trying to change campus culture. What is what are a few things you might recommend to people more in those roles of how do you support faculty in changing their pedagogy and thinking more about inclusion and engagement and things like that? Um, I, I think one of the biggest things you can do is um, really offering tools and techniques to faculty to help them understand where they might have blind spots in their mm. teaching. Um, I think there are some common things, but there are also opportunities to potentially um, go in and watch someone teach and to have that as a lens that they're looking for um, in a classroom session, but also to review materials, for example, for a course. Maybe they get on your learning management system and offer some suggestions um, for things that, that might improve um, inclusion in the course. I think there's a lot more dialogue we could be having even among colleagues about this. So forming faculty learning communities, mm -hmm. I think, is a really helpful way to foster conversations across disciplines about how to actually make this happen in courses. So most of us use group work, for example, in our classes. So thinking about what structures exist to enable group work to happen mm -hmm. in ways where students are really feeling ownership in the group and not um, you know, there's no one, there's no social loafing and there's, you know, there's a, an opportunity to really think through effectively running group work in a classroom setting. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways in which we could engage using not just the peer to peer aspect, but, um, having people have time and space to evaluate these questions. So if we want to, as administrators, if we want faculty to engage in these initiatives, we actually need to give them time to engage yeah. in the initiative. <laughs> we might need to provide some data to share why that's an important mission to take on for them individually or as a department, however you want to think about taking it on. Um, but there needs to be a lot more conversations and a lot of um, really practical um, tips as well as time, really time to do that introspection that needs to happen, the reflection, yeah. the modification. Um, it is a time-consuming process, and um, I wish I could say you're going to get there eventually, but but there is always moving. So you have yeah. to, it's a continual process. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Any last words, thing you really want to make sure you've said? Mm -hmm. um, I, I really respect a lot of the work that you all are doing in terms of um, thinking about public service and the classroom as an opportunity for learners to really engage, um, not not just in the classroom, but to be thinking broadly about mm -hmm. what they can contribute. And that is inclusion too, right? So thinking mm -hmm. through um, that sense of belonging is so important for a learner. I think it's equally important for a faculty member. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's often overlooked. And if we can really start to think about this being a challenge, not just, uh, or a challenge in a good and, and, um, and a, sometimes a negative sense, something that we all push for um, because it's an important thing to do, but to give people the time and space and the training to do it is really important too. Yes, I agree. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me on. 
And we're back for to find out what's sparking joy in the new year for everyone. And wondering who wants to go first. I'll go. Um, well, so I'm going to contextualize this with in the context of like the um, crazy situation that's happening in Puerto Rico with all of the earthquakes and um, how devastating and um, that is for the folks in the southern region. That's actually um, one of the towns affected is, is where my family's from. So uh, it hits particularly hard when I think about we were just there this summer. Um, and, you know, thinking about... Um, you know, what folks are going through with the uncertainty of like, when is another earthquake going to come in so many at the same time. But what's sparking joy for me in the midst of sort of um, the chaos um, there and the, the lack of government response or the slowness to that is really citizen action. And so thinking about the way um, the diaspora in the United States, both in Chicago and um, across, um, you know, U.S. cities where there's significant uh, Puerto Rican population have mobilized to, to send support and how uh, Puerto Ricans on the island, especially from the northern part of the island, um, you know, collected uh, donations, went down, started um, helping, um, you know, their uh, fellow Puerto Ricans in the south. And there was a big caravan that was coming from the north to the south, bringing supplies, setting up tents. And so while the government is sitting in air conditioned tents and talking like there's citizen action, like really helping to address the um, needs of folks most impacted. So that piece is sparking joy for me. I will share a little bit that uh, takes us back to our discussion earlier about the presidential primaries. Um, so I was minding my own business, starting to listen to um, the latest edition of the 538 podcast or one of the recent ones in any case, which I listened to. So for those not familiar, it's about uh, electoral politics. Um, and I uh, heard that they were doing a sort of documentary series as part of the podcast on how we got the presidential candidate selection process that we now have. So we, you know, we were talking earlier about this. We have caucuses, we have primaries, we have delegates, we have an incredibly elaborate and complicated system for selecting presidential candidates in the United States. And it, so there's a kind of historical story about how that happened. And so that's what 538 is doing this series on. And on the first episode, which is about the role of 1968, and in particular, the chaos at the Democratic Convention in 1968, the role of all that in driving the changes that led to the system we have now. And as they, so I'm listening along, and one of the people I hear interviewed is a faculty member at Virginia Tech named Caitlin Jewett. Here's why that sparks joy. Uh, Caitlin was a student of mine in 2004 when I took students up to immerse them in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, she was a terrific student at Hartwick College who got excited about presidential primaries through that experiential opportunity. She 
volunteered for a campaign, as all the students did. She, we all went out and heard candidates on the stump, and um, we did a seminar about, uh, you know, how the presidential primaries and and presidential selection works. My colleague Laurel Elder, who still teaches at Hartwick, kind of drove the the content of that because she has expertise in campaigns and elections. So Caitlin was one of those students. She got hooked on this question. She wrote an undergraduate thesis on it. Went to grad school and wrote a dissertation about it that became a book. Um, and so now she's one of the nation's leading experts on this crazy process we use to pick presidents. And so it was very fun for me to uh, to be reminded of all that as I heard her as a kind of expert voice on this 538 podcast. Those are great, you guys. And, and Andrew, you just... Um helped me figure out what mine was because I was struggling a little bit today, but I'll give a, I'll give a little shout out for my Sparks Joy. I actually had coffee this morning with Samantha Bain and Samantha has been a student at Drake University that we've worked with a lot. She's been very involved in voter engagement at Drake, but also worked for us part-time through the Campus Election Engagement Project and has just really been extremely, um, engaged in getting her peers to vote and in all the electoral processes here. And of course, as happens with all students, if we've been successful, she has graduated and is on her way next week to Washington, D.C. to start her her new life. And so I'm just I just want to give her a shout out at these. You know, one of the joys of working in higher education is getting to see folks complete their degree and and the exciting chapters they take on next. And I'm just very excited for what's coming next for her and for her to get a chance to try out D.C. And it was also nice to hear she's not from Iowa originally, but after four years here, considers herself an Iowan and is moving out to D.C. with that um, with that spirit of hardworking, engaged Iowan. And I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I think uh, a little theme, right? It's like uh, times can be complicated and things can be complicated. But if you like see people taking action, doing things uh, like learning and taking what they learn and doing good stuff with it, uh, well, all of this stuff is a little bit more tolerable and it allows us to imagine how we get to some different kind of future. Yes. Gives hope. Mm hmm. Well, thank you both so much for being on today and making the podcast successful. Appreciate you as co-hosts. And thank you to all of our listeners. We're excited to have you, of course. Tell your friends, rate us, review us, do what you need to do. We're always up for your ideas for topics and guests as well. So let us know. Uh, podcast at compact.org or hashtag compact nation pod on social media. And we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.